Morning. You you came, right? Um, Happy New Year. I am not Kevin Jameson. Um, my name is Mike Cosper. I'm one of the pastors here at East Campus. Um, this morning, we're going to be digging into the book of Esther. Um, and the reason for Esther is I think there's a lot of themes, a lot of ideas that run through this book that I think are great to reflect on as we start a new year. There's no way that we could cover the whole book. I mean, I could just sit here and read the book, and that might be better. Um, But I want to encourage you guys after today, I want to encourage you to read it. It's a book that's had some controversy in its history. Martin Luther, for instance, um, hated it and wanted to have it pulled from the canon. Um, Part of the reason he said was that it was too Jewish, which I think says more about Luther than it does about Esther. Um, But part of the reason people don't like the book is because God is actually absent from the story. You never hear God's name. You never see, um, with one exception, there's not even really any religious activity, religious discussion in the whole book. And it's an interesting book to think about in, in terms of how is God at work in a world where his name isn't mentioned, in a world where, where he's unknown. Um, some people have said it's, it's a book that has the strongest case for God's sovereignty in the whole Bible. Um, we're going to be in chapters 3 and 4, if you want to look there. Um, to, to summarize what's happened so far, um, the main characters are uh, two people, Esther and Mordecai. Esther is Mordecai's niece. She's an orphan who presumably came to live with him after her parents died. Um, Esther chapter 1, the king gets drunk, banishes his wife. Um, Esther chapter 2, he misses his wife, and his advisors come up with a scheme to get a new queen. And the scheme is that all of the young women in the region are going to be gathered up. They're going to be taken to the palace. One by one, he's going to sleep with all of them, and the one that he likes best is going to become the new queen. Um, it's kind of like if it were a reality show, it would be who wants to marry a brutal Persian dictator. Um, so she goes to live, uh, she goes to live at the palace. Um, she's not passive though. She's actively trying to please all of the people in the, in the palace around her, the, the head of the harem and all of this. One thing leads to another. She has her night with the king and the king likes her best. She becomes the queen. Esther chapter 3, shortly after she becomes the queen, um, Mordecai, her uncle, um, it tells us he's at the king's gate. And, and the king's gate is more like um, a council than it is actually a, a physical location. It's a physical location. But this is the place where people who were influencers, who were political influencers and that sort of thing in culture, they would spend time there trying to get an audience with the king and trying to influence those who had an audience with the king. So Mordecai's there. He's there regularly, and and one day he hears of a a plot to assassinate the king. He gets word to Esther. Esther gets word to the king, and the assassination plot is is foiled, and the the men who headed it up are put to death. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3. It's just after this assassination attempt, and what happens is the king makes some changes in government. What you see up to this point in um, the book of Esther is the king seems to always be surrounded by advisors. Um, After the assassination plot, things change. So we'll start with chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, 
for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Skipping down to verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Skipping ahead a bit here, Mordecai has, you know, hears of this. He rends his garments. He sits outside the king's gate, mourning and wailing. And eventually he sends word to Esther saying, you've got to do something to help us. She gets back to him and she says, look, there's nothing I can do. I can't go before the king unless the king invites me. Um, Going before the king uninvited is is punishable by death. So picking up in chapter 4, verse 12, they, the messengers, told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So looking at this story, there's three kind of dynamics I want to explore in what's going on here. The first is power, um, second is vulnerability, and the third is priesthood. And to talk about power um, with regard to Esther and Mordecai in particular, we have to reckon with some uncomfortable truths about them. Um, if you read a lot of books about Esther, if you, if you have heard a lot of Sunday school stories about Esther, she often gets presented as sort of this virtuous hero. She's this beautiful Jewish girl. She has all this virtue. She's so wonderful that when the king meets her, he just can't help but fall in love with her right away. And in this, she's presented as sort of being this, this pure one in the midst of all of this darkness and all of this sin. And that just simply doesn't resonate with what's going on in the text. Um, We can start with where Mordecai is introduced to us in Esther chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. If if you were a Jew living in exile, that sentence would make your ears hurt. Because uh, because there's two major things. The first is, there's a Jew living in the citadel. Um, He's not living in the town of Susa. It's, It's clear that he's living in the citadel of Susa. And the citadel is the center of the Persian government. It's the center of power. And you have, a, you have a Jew living there trying to influence and act amongst, um, amongst the Persians. It's, it's a Jew who's not living amongst the Jews. The second reason it would make your ears hurt, ears hurt is because his name is Mordecai. We know Mordecai as a Jewish name now, but at the time of the book, it, it's not a Jewish name. In fact, it's a Persian name. In fact, it's a Persian name that's named after Marduk, a Persian god. So you have a Jew living in the citadel under a Persian name. He's... He's, by all, uh, by all evidence in the book, he's deliberately hiding his Jewish identity. 
Not only that, um, Esther is kind of in the same boat. We're, we're told her name is Hadassah. Um, that, that was probably the name her parents gave her. Her parents were Jews. So they probably named her Hadassah. And when she came to live with her uncle Mordecai, her name, he probably is the one who gave her the name Esther so that she too could pass as a non-Jew amongst the Persians. When she goes to live with the harem, Mordecai is explicit in telling her, don't let, don't let anyone know that you're Jewish. And there's lots of evidence that they're compromised. She willingly goes along with everything at the palace. She eats the food. She wears the cosmetics. She makes, you know, there's no evidence of any resistance whatsoever. Um, in fact, they're actively participating in all of these things. And, and sometimes we want to kind of let them off the hook and say, well, they were forced to do it. Um, there, there were laws. They would have been put to death if they had resisted. But there are plenty of stories of Jews in the exile who resisted uh, laws that ran against their own Jewish identities. And they were willing to face death. Clearly, you have two people here who are either weak enough in their faith that they're not willing to face death or happily compromised and happily going along with a godless culture. Um, the best contrast, I think, for this is if you look at Daniel and his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. He refused to obey any law that conflicted with his identity as a Jew. At the same time, I think we've got to be compassionate for Mordecai and Esther. Because the difference, one of the big differences between Daniel and between uh, these two characters is that Daniel was, was born in Jerusalem. He was there until he was probably about 15 years old, and then he was dragged off into the exile. And so he knew a world where there was a temple. He knew a world where Jewish identity was clear and established and separate. Where in Esther's case, she's, she's born into exile. It's much, much later. She doesn't know a Jewish world. She knows only a Persian world. One reason I think this is a great, a great uh, story to study here at the beginning of a year is that we do live in a world now where, in many ways, sort of the age of Christendom, the structures of Christendom have, have given way. We live in an age that, again, is defined by secularism. It's defined by technology and innovation. We live in a world that's far more like Esther's than like Daniel's. And at the core, I think, of, of the evidence for, for why this is happening, why these compromises are being made, is that Mordecai wants to be in the seat of power. He wants to be in the center of the action. But in chapter 3, we're introduced to a character whose love of power far eclipses Mordecai's. Like I said, in chapter 2, there's this plot against the king. Mordecai hears it, tells Esther. Esther tells the king the plot's foiled. And I think the king is reasonably rattled by all of this. And as a result, he appoints this new vizier. He appoints Haman into this role. Um, if you've watched Game of Thrones, this is kind of like, um, like someone appointing the hand of the king, somebody who has all of that kind of authority. Of course, none of us watch Game of Thrones because we're way more like Daniel than Mordecai, right? Here's how Haman is introduced. It says, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, Agagite is kind of the key concept here for understanding who this guy is. Um, Agag, A-G-A-G, was the king of the Amalekites, uh, and he did war with King Saul and, uh, and several generations before. And the Amalekites are the first the first tribe who kind of declares war on Israel as Israel is journeying through the desert after Mount Sinai. And in fact, not only did they, did they attack, did they initiate the fight, but they attacked them from behind. Um, and this, this conflict between the Amalekites and Israel is really kind of central to the way uh, Jewish people understood the story of the book of Esther. 
In fact, traditionally at Purim, the festival, the annual festival that to this day is still celebrated, um, this passage from Deuteronomy gets read before you read the book of Esther. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Remember when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. You shall not forget. See, the Amalekites were willing to prey on the very weakest. By attacking from behind, they're attacking people who are slow, people who are sick, the elderly, the weary from the journeys. And the reason they do that is the reason that terrorists attack innocent people to this very day. It's not about physically harming this group of people so much as it is getting in their heads. It's about psychological warfare. It's about demoralizing people before the battle has ever begun. And it demonstrates this this amorality, this willingness to do anything to win, this grasping for power that, that sees no problem with any kinds of means until you get to your ultimate ends. Yoram Hazoni, a, a Jewish philosopher, wrote this about the Amalekites. He said, we have no idea what gods ruled over the Amalekites. None are named, and for all we know, there may have been none at all. What we do know is that whatever gods may have belonged to Amalek, as a people, they did not fear any moral boundaries established by them. Unlike even the most depraved of the idolaters of Canaan, they respected no limits on their desire to control all as they found fit. Hazoni's take reminds me of a famous quote by Dostoevsky from the Brothers Karamazov, where he said, without God, everything is possible. Meaning in a world without God, what what kind of moral restraint would we ever embrace? Why would we embrace moral restraint? Well, Haman the Agagite is a symbol of this kind of unrestrained grasping for power. And the order to bow down to him is not just an order to bow to Haman, not just an order to bow to the throne, but but, but an order to bow to the idol of power itself. I think as Christians, we have kind of a difficult relationship with power. It's difficult to know how to make sense of it given what we're, we're called to in terms of humility and gentleness, and, and yet we're called to have this voice and we're called to have this influence in the world. There are definite examples in the scriptures where we can point and say that these are good uses of power. You know, the life of Moses, the, the work of David, the work of Solomon, the work of Joseph, the work of Nehemiah. And yet you can see evil examples of power right and left as well. Saul, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and more. And then there's this kind of gray area. You can go back to most of those good characters and you can see these moments in their lives where they abused their power. They exploited people with their power or their power resulted in in tragic results. David exploits his power and sleeps with Bathsheba and as a result, he has to kill her husband to try to hide his sin. Joseph is one of the most interesting examples to me. He's, he's the one, again, the Sunday school stories, we celebrate him. We, he's Joseph in the, he's got the Technicolor dream coat and the musical and it all ends really happy, right? But his story ends and when the Exodus picks up in the next book, we realize that, that after Joseph's life, after the Jews were assimilated into, into uh, Egypt, they were enslaved and they were enslaved for 400 years. And that's part of Joseph's legacy. So power has consequences, and power often has consequences that we may not even be able to understand. And the point of this is that wielding power is is something that we have to be careful in how we steward. We tend to think of power as something that's meant to uh, bring bring about our own ends. We, We use power for comfort, for prosperity, for health, for wealth. 
But I think that there's a distinctively Judeo-Christian ethic of power that you see in the scriptures that's, that's driven by these ethics. It's, first of all, that you don't exploit. The power is not meant to grasp for whatever you can at the expense of others. But rather, power makes sense when we use it on behalf of the weak and the vulnerable. And to do that means that we jeopardize our power. We put our power at risk for the sake of other people. There's a great book. I don't have time to dig into it too much, but I really want to commend it to you. It's by Andy Crouch, and it's called Strong and Weak. And he digs into this, this, this connection between power and vulnerability. And he, he draws this picture that essentially says that, that power without vulnerability, power without risk, is almost always exploitation. The power with vulnerability, power where we put something at risk on behalf of others, is something that leads to flourishing for the whole world. And I think that's something you see here in this story. The Amalekites and Haman himself are symbols of this kind of unrestrained, self-interested power. Haman would rather murder an entire group, an entire ethnic group of people, than bring about, the, you know, reveal his own vulnerability, which is that he can't stand that this one guy won't, stand, won't bow for him. Bowing to Haman then is bowing to the idol of power. And elevating him to this position of absolute authority creates the crisis in Mordecai's life. After Haman's installation into this role, he refuses to bow and he reveals his Jewish identity. It says this, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he wouldn't listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. So why is he revealing his, his identity now? I think there's three reasons. One is, again, this history, the history of animosity between the Jews and the Amalekites. The second is that fundamental to his identity as a Jew and fundamental to our identity as Christians is that we don't bow to idols. We have one God whom we worship. And then the third thing is, is sort of a bigger picture thing that you see throughout the book of Esther. And that's this. Mordecai works for peace in the realm. Mordecai intervenes on behalf of the king when this, when this plot to murder the king comes about. And I think, in, in a way, he's, he's living out a command from Jeremiah chapter 9, where God spoke to the exiles and he said, work for the peace and the flourishing of the city to which I sent you. And so Mordecai knows enough that he knows that if, if our society is going to be built around this idol of power, it's going to be destructive and I'm going to resist it. I'm going to refuse to bow to that idol. In doing this, he's inviting the possibility of suffering. He's recognizing that he's powerless, and frankly, he's making himself powerless by letting them know, I'm a Jew. If he had just continued to pass in his Persian identity, he would have been much safer. So then when the decree to kill the Jews comes out, his mourning, his resistance, his, his public voice against all of this goes a step further. Chapter 4, verse one, it says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. He's making it as clear as possible. I'm one of these people and something has to be done. He sends word to Esther. Esther tells him she can't go before the king and this is what he replies to her. He says, do not think that you yourself and the king's palace will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jew will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
her reasons for resistance are obvious. She doesn't want to be killed by the king uh, for coming uninvited, but she also doesn't want to reveal that she's Jewish and be subject to this decree for her death. Mordecai's response to her is interesting. If you read the commentators on it, there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of what's actually going on. Is he, is he appealing to her from a place of virtue, or is he kind of blackmailing her, saying, oh, you think you'll escape? We'll see about that. But one of the phrases that's really interesting is when he says, relief and deliverance will come from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. He's, he's kind of self-contradictory in that moment. He's saying, if you don't do anything, God's going to save the Jews. But, he, but you and your father's house will perish. The Jews will be fine, but you won't if you do anything. And, and, and it's interesting to ask what he means by that. Again, is this a blackmail thing, or is there, is there something else going on? I think what he's appealing to is the fact that this is a girl with two names. She knows that she was born with the name Hadassah. She knows that she's Jewish. And she also knows that she's an orphan, that she's the last in her father's line. And so here's this sort of moment of crisis in her life. And what he's calling her to is he's saying, look, you'll either stand with us as Jews now. You'll either identify as one of God's people in the midst of this crisis and stand with us, or you'll never be able to stand with us ever again. The Jews are going to be fine. God is going to rescue them. But if you don't stand with us now, you're cutting yourself off from these people forever. And so he appeals to her that this is, this is the time, such a time as this. This is this moment, this moment of crisis. Maybe all of this stuff, maybe everything that's happened so far in our lives, maybe your loss as an orphan, maybe, maybe all of this has led to this moment where we're in this place and this time and able to do something to intervene. It's a beautiful moment in part because you have these characters who are so profoundly compromised so profoundly disconnected from their, their Jewish identity. And they come to this moment of crisis, and it's this opportunity to repent, to reconnect, and to stand with God's people, and to be used by God in a profound way. And I think that's something that, that most of us hope for, right? Most of us have these moments in our lives, these experiences in our lives, where we feel we've gone too far, we're, we're too disconnected, our, our sorrows are too great, our despair is too great, our sin is too great. And yet here are people who are profoundly, profoundly disconnected from God's people, taking steps and recognizing that, that in this moment, as God calls them, they can repent, they can return. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, chapter 4, verse 15, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did as Esther had, ordained, had ordered him. Notice quickly that this is the only religious sentiment in the whole book. Go and fast for three days and three nights. God's name isn't mentioned. There's no mention of a prayer, anything like that. It's the only religious sentiment. And I want to urge you to go read the rest of the book. There's, there's all these great twists of irony. Um, it's a beautiful story in many ways. But spoiler alert, her plan works. Um, she goes before the king after she's fasted for three days and three nights. And this is another moment where I think the Sunday school lesson version of the story gets it wrong. A lot of times they say, you know, she's so beautiful, she's so virtuous, she's standing in the hallway outside the king's, uh, king's chambers, and he just can't resist. She's so pretty uh, to, to call her in. She's not had food or water for three days or three nights. 
how do you look after three days and three nights without food or water? She looks terrible. She's suffering. And she's visibly suffering in front of him when she appears. And that's why he can't resist calling her to him. By making herself weak, by making herself vulnerable, and in weakness, she approaches him. He doesn't kill her, and things unfold from there. Once she reveals that she's a Jew and that all of this has been this vicious plot by Haman, the king relents, he hangs Haman, and he gives an order that ends up rescuing the Jews. Not only rescuing the Jews, but empowering them to attack those who would like to have killed them in the first place. And so this brings me to kind of the last theme. This, the, we've talked about power. We've seen vulnerability in Esther and Mordecai's lives. I want to talk a little bit about priesthood. Because there's this, this interesting sort of uh, symbology of priesthood going on in the book. Esther's like a priest. Uh, for the priest to go in front of the presence of God uh, unbidden, uh, without permission, was worthy of death. God's presence kills somebody who's not prepared to go into that presence. So priests had to go through all this, this whole rigmarole of, of preparation and purification before they could enter the Holy of Holies. Once they go there, they intercede on behalf of, of the people and they receive mercy from God's wrath. And so in many ways, Esther is like this. She's going to this king on behalf of these people after she's prepared herself for this, this whole time. But she's also a signpost to a greater priest. In our own lives, we can see how Jesus parallels, parallels Esther for our sake. We stood condemned to death. Jesus didn't cling to his royal position with all of its blessings and luxuries, but he puts himself at risk. And he says, if I perish, I perish. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have your, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, it's by making himself vulnerable on behalf of others and subject to death, he's able to redeem others. By relinquishing power, he saves God's people. But unlike Esther, Jesus does perish. He dies. And on the third day, he rises from the dead. And in this resurrection, we have this new way of life. One of the temptations we face as Christians, and, and really one of the temptations that preachers face, is to say something at a point like this, like this. We can't do what Jesus did, uh, but thank God that Jesus did it so we don't have to do it. What I mean is there's, a, there's an easy way that you can let yourself off the hook in terms of our own way of life and our own actions after this. Because we can't do what Jesus did. We can't lay down our lives on behalf of other people to redeem them from their sins and redeem them from hell. We can't do anything to rescue ourselves. That's true. That's fact. That's the gospel. And we hear things and we hear things like the law says do and the gospel says done. And that's 100% true. But look again there at the first verse in that passage from Philippians. When Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. It's an invitation to a way of life, and it's an invitation to follow the model of Jesus and, frankly, to follow the model of someone like Esther into a life of vulnerability and sacrifice for the sake of others. 
it's true that Jesus is a better Esther, but Esther's a pretty good Esther herself. To follow Jesus in the world might look a lot like Esther and Mordecai's self-sacrificing lives. It might look a lot like embracing vulnerability for the sake of other people. Because in their stories, we can see what results in the culture around them. It results in flourishing. Mordecai refuses to bow to an idol, and resisting that idol reveals that idol for the monster that it truly is. His life and Esther's life in the midst of it bear witness to a different way of seeing and a different way of being in the world around them. And so if we believe that this way of life is better, if the scriptures are calling us, telling us that this way of life is better, then it needs to be lived out for our own good, with love for the world, and ultimately with love for God. Esther shows us that it's better to be self-sacrificing than selfish, that making ourselves vulnerable for the sake of others is better than withdrawing and being self-protective. So, round in, the, round in the corner here, my challenge to you for 2017 is to do something, to risk something, to sacrifice something for the sake of other people, to make yourself vulnerable for the sake of God's kingdom. And to do it not because you're trying to earn something, because that work is finished in Christ, but because you really do believe that it's a better way to live. That kind of risk is possible because in Jesus, we're ultimately safe. And you're safe no matter how far you think you've wandered, how far you think you've compromised. Again, Esther and Mordecai's lives represent that for us. In the world around us, you might face ridicule and shame. You might suffer temporarily for, for what you believe. You might, you might suffer for risking yourselves. But ultimately in Christ, we're sure of a safety and security beyond this life. I have a hard time imagining a gospel that saves us and then allows us to be lazy. I can't imagine a God who made himself vulnerable and expects us to remain hidden and comfortable. The gospel itself should make us bolder in our risks, trusting that whatever may come, God has us and God keeps us. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote um, from the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and it gets quoted often. And I've got to be honest, it, I've come to uh, be troubled by it. And it's the quote where they're talking about Aslan and they say, um, you know, one of the kids asks one of the creatures, you know, hey, is he, is he safe? And the answer is, well, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's true. That's true in a certain sense. But I think it can give us the wrong impression. Because the reality is that in Jesus, being in the presence of God is the safest place on earth to be. Because in Christ... God has no memory of your sins, no desire to wag his finger at you. And so like Esther, we can boldly go into this throne room knowing that mercy awaits all of us. On the night he was betrayed, our Savior, Jesus Christ, took a loaf of bread and broke it, giving thanks. He said, this is my body, broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup, this cup represents my blood, the shedding of my blood. And as often as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We gather at this table each week and we remember that ultimately in Christ, we are safe. That ultimately in Christ, we are welcome into the very presence of God. And we gather and we send as a church, remembering that truth as we go out into the world to live a better way of life. Let's pray.